His two biggest passions are pit bull rescue and providing hope to people battling cancer. They are mantras that have been shaped by his life, a life that has been full of twists and turns and difficult and defining moments. Hello, I'm James Jacobson, and welcome to The Long Leash. My guest today started in the world of professional wrestling and mixed martial arts. He is a talent agent, an author, a podcaster, as well as a cancer survivor, two times over. He is also a massive pit bull rescue advocate. Our guest today is Rick Bassman. Rick is unlike anyone you've probably ever met. He is, in his own words, a contradiction in terms. Someone who is just as apt at digging a bullet out of his belly as he is at crying at a love story. He counts among his best friends, career criminals, environmentalists, hard-drinking street brawlers, and business leaders. But as he says, they all have one thing in common, They are all good people. At the top of his game, Rick was a high-ranking Disney executive, a big-time concert promoter, TV and movie producer, and he owned professional wrestling and mixed martial arts brands and fighting gyms. But at the bottom, he battled stage 4 testicular cancer, and then later lung cancer, homelessness, poverty, addiction, and he was even shot, stabbed, and bitten. In this conversation, Rick talks candidly about his near death when he was in his teens, the day his mother left and never came back, his love of dogs, love for life, and his mission to change perceptions about pit bulls. And just a quick warning here that there is some salty language in today's episode, and that is where you will hear a bark or two to cover it up. At Dog Podcast Network, we call it barking it out instead of bleeping it out. Here's my conversation with Rick Bassman. Rick Bassman, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, James, I'm really glad to be here, man. Just I was beyond psyched when I found out that the Dog Podcast Network exists. And, uh, you know, I got to tell you, not that I'm anything special because I'm not by a long shot, but I get a lot of requests for interviews these days. And I just you can't accommodate all of them. And there's no way I was going to pass this up, man. It's just too good. So thank you. Well, it is my pleasure. And the other thing that is kind of cool is that I believe this may be the first interview that I have ever conducted remotely with someone who lives on my island here in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You're a fellow Maui resident. Yeah. I mean, what were the chances, man? I found you guys online and I started doing a, you know, a shallow dive, then a deeper dive. And this is really cool, man. The dog podcast network. And I was pretty far into it before I saw the Maui connection. That really, <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that was, uh, what were the, what are the chances? All right. Well, that's just where I live. We have a team of incredible dog lovers all over the world, but I just happen to live here and, and we live on the same rock and we love dogs and we have a lot of similarities, but I think we have a lot of differences too, because, well, let's just say our backgrounds are a little different. When you meet someone the first time, how do you introduce yourself? Well, man, you know, I, I don't know how I'd introduce myself. I started life, I think, ostensibly as a very average guy from a middle-class background and you know, I'm five foot four inches tall and I'm 140 pounds on a good day. And I've ended up, uh, you know, traveling the world at the like pinnacle of like every tough guy profession there is out there, you know, whether it's pro wrestling or bodybuilding or mixed martial arts and, and with the world's largest, craziest, toughest people. And oddly enough, I'm always a guy in charge. So it's been, it's been a weird life for sure. And I think I've got to do I not think I've got to do some amazing things in my life, have experiences that most people, I don't know how to say this and not sound arrogant, but hundreds of experiences, most people probably would love to have one of, but then the flip side is, man, I've just been deep in some horrible, horrible for my life, whether it's, you know, near death illness, uh, life-threatening injury, 
um, addiction, depression, homelessness, you name it, man. So uh, I don't know how I describe myself. I'm all over the freaking place. Well, I understand when we chatted briefly a couple weeks ago, your two biggest passions are pit bulls, which is what brings you to Dog Podcast Network, and also helping people who've had to do what we call the cancer Iditarod, their cancer journey themselves. Yeah, those would be my two biggies in life for sure. And at, at the risk of sounding callous, probably in that order, man, dogs, uh, I'll say it first, but probably okay to say it on Dog Podcast Network. Dogs are better than people. There you go. I said it. I think you will find a lot of our listeners agreeing with you and nodding their heads. I would guess I'm not going to get in trouble on this particular show <laughs> saying that. And if I did, that'd be okay. I don't mind getting in trouble. But um, yeah, those, those are my two biggies. You know, I, I actually have a real job now. And I never thought I'd have a job again in my adult life. And, you know, by day, I run uh, Talent Worldwide for Cameo, which a lot of people are becoming familiar with. It's a very explosive, exciting company. What is Cameo for people who are not familiar with it? Cameo really quickly is the, um, it's the, the pinnacle technology that connects celebrities to their fans through what's commonly known as a video shout out greeting, but uh, through all sorts of different products that we facilitate as well. And it's a lot of fun, man, but it's a, uh, dude, it's a buster. I'm working 14 hours a day, every day. And it's fine. I love it. I really enjoy it. And I work with a great, great people. What we call our employees Famio to play on cameo and family. And uh, it sounds a little like drink the Kool-Aid. And it sounded that way to me before I started with the company, but it's very real. So, you know, it's given me a, a sense of belonging up here in my isolation on Maui. So I really enjoy that. But um, yeah, man, my two big things would definitely be two brands that I started and maintained to a certain degree. Uh, one is called We Win. And you can find it on facebook.com forward slash We Win Now. And it's, uh, you know, by survivors, for survivors and for others that are going through it. And the, the it is stage four cancer and all that it brings with it. And that comes from, you know, from my personal experience when I was much younger, I had uh, stage four testicular cancer, which metastasized to both lungs. And I was given at one point a six month survival prognosis and just went through some, some really, really horrific chemo. I spent um, in that three year period of time I had cancer, James, I spent about 600 nights in the hospital as an inpatient. And you were young at the time. I was young. I was 16 when I was diagnosed and 19 when I went into my second and hopefully final remission. It's been 40 years now, so I don't even think about it anymore insofar as myself getting it. So, you know, I found that, you know, because of my story and because I've come out the other side with the positive attitude, you know, that sounds so cliche to say that these days, but because of that, you know, and because I fought, I fought professionally after that. And I did a lot of crazy things that, you know, that are, that are physically taxing. And most people that do get past stage four, and it's a small portion, they feel like their lives are over after that point. They're wrecked. Mm. They're done. There's nothing more they can do than like barely draw breath. And I, I try to, to live as an example that there are other possibilities for sure. And then uh, also there for people that are in it right now, because I understand the experience. And uh, when it comes to people that are suffering and in it or just through it, you know, I will take a phone call 24 seven, anytime, any day. I'm always, always glad to be of service in that regard. So that's a big one. Do you think that you were able to have that mindset because you were dealing with cancer so young in your life when you were a teenager? The mindset of... Well, the mindset of, like you said, that most people who get out on the other side of stage four cancer blown. They don't have any more energy to fight. And do you think that your youth, although it was a horrible thing, obviously, for anyone yeah. to have to go through, I can only imagine what your family and, you know, just a horrible thing to have to go through. But do you imagine that your youth gave you some of that fortitude to look at it differently? I don't know, man. If I had to answer that question right now, since you asked me, I will do my best to answer it. You know, before I, I make fun of myself a lot. And some people think it's like annoyingly self-deprecating. Like, you know, I used to call myself short, bald and funny looking. And now I call myself short, bald, funny looking and old. So <laughs> the reason I say that is, you know, outwardly, I wasn't born with a whole lot of, you know, what most people would, you know, consider gifts. I think one gift that was God given for me 
was just a natural resilience, man. Unfortunately, I wish I could suggest a formula for it. But, you know, anybody out there right now, any like great looking guys or beautiful girls who are tall and statuesque and wealthy, <laughs> rest on that. That's something, you know, um, and that's great. It's great you have that. I can't tell you how to be resilient. You know, Philip Knight or his ad people summed it up best when they said, just do it for Nike. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Can I tell you one quick story, which I think like set the stage for my life and, and this resilience? Of course. It came early. I was 13 years old, grew up middle class in the San Fernando Valley. Very normal upbringing, I think, for the early 1970s. You know, nice parents. You know, I don't know if they say they're great examples, but they weren't bad examples. They were supportive. My dad worked very hard. His only interest in life was working, selling lamps and pictures to furniture stores. Uh, my mom was a wild thing. She was a big personality. And I, I do think I chip off mom's block in some ways, for sure. Um, not, not always for the better, I can tell you that. <laughs> and um, at 13, my mom went away for the weekend, as she said, with her girlfriends to Palm Springs just for the weekend. And she had a massive stroke and died uh, while on vacation that weekend. And as it turned out, she wasn't with her girlfriend. She was having an affair. And you know, those kind of things, I think, stay with you to a certain degree. So my mom, she was the closest person in the world to me, and she was ostensibly healthy and vivacious on Friday night when we talked on the phone with her. She was in Palm Springs Saturday. She was gone. And, you know, it was a shocker. I was 13. My brother was 12. We're close to our mom. So that, that had a big influence. And my dad, after that, was on the road constantly working to keep the ship afloat, so to speak. And my brother and I were largely left to our own devices. We became like these junior criminal masterminds. Nothing too horrible, but, you know, we had our fun. And uh, my mom, being my mom, she would do like what I would call experimental things with us. I know that sounds weird, so let me explain. (laughs) Uh, She would take us to the Braille School for the Blind for the day, Mm -hmm. and we would have to wear blindfolds the entire time we were there. She went out and bought little suits for her 11- and 12-year-old sons, and somehow managed to arrange a meeting with uh, the mayor of Los Angeles behind closed doors. So my mom would do trippy out there, things like that. So one thing that in her mind must have been a good idea was we grew up Jewish. We're not religious. We're not observant, but that's our heritage. So we grew up Jewish. She thought it'd be cool to enroll me in a Catholic school. So the September after she died, she died in May. A few months later, I started at this Catholic school. And I took her death hard, man. I was a baby about it. I admit it. And I entered this school pretty shell-shocked. And one thing I noticed the first day of school was, man, James, I wasn't the shortest boy in school. I was the shortest kid in school, girls included, before I had my massive growth spurt in seventh grade or eighth grade, whatever it was, right? And that first day, I also learned not long after, I was the only non-Catholic in the whole school. And the non-Catholic happened to be a Jew. And back in the early 70s in the Valley, you know, you could be anti-Semitic and not really get taken down a notch for that. So I was approached the very first day I was there by the biggest kid in school named Michael Darwin. I'll never forget Michael as long as I live. He looks down at me. He goes, you're Jewish? And I said, yeah. And he laid me out with the right cross, man. Boom. That was it. Just like that. No discipline, no repercussions. And here's what happened, James. By the end of that school year, and this will sound like a bold exaggeration, but I'm going to say it. I fought about 200 times. So that means I had to fight every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, sometimes two fights, sometimes three. And something happened halfway through the school year. A, I started winning a lot of fights. And B, practice makes perfect. And I noticed I was like becoming popular. It was really weird. Like the small, lone Jewish kid in the Catholic school. So, End of the year is coming around and the student body elections are coming up. There's only four offices in the entire school because it's a small school. So, you know, to perpetuate the stereotype, I, the Jewish kid runs for student body treasurer, right? So, <laughs> so I run for treasurer and the results were going to be announced at uh, the dance that night, the end of the year dance. I had come off my mom's death less than a year before. I was trash, man. I was a mess. You know, my dad was away a lot. My brother and I started on the drugs and all that sort of thing. I went to school. I was picked on. I was besieged. I was on my own. You know, I was made fun of because of my heritage, which I really knew nothing about. It was not 
<laughs> you know, on, on that note, if you look at it just that way, it was not a very great year. What happened on the final day of school was this. I cornered Michael Darwin in the yard and beat the shit out of him, went to the dance, was announced as the winner of student body treasurer. And then I made out with uh, Debbie, the hottest girl in school in front of the entire student body. <laughs> and uh, dude, my life's been like that ever since, man. It's like just, you know, peaks and valleys, man. Not, not a lot of even keel sailing. That's for sure. So Mr. Darwin is in fact responsible for your evolution in a great respect. Yeah, I should thank him. I should look him up on Facebook. I think you should. You should definitely. One of those things you come together and like, oh my God, you changed my life. You probably don't remember me. Or either that or Debbie the girl to dance, but yeah. Right. That is a great story. So let's talk a little bit about how you help other people who have cancer and are fighting cancer live better lives. Well, there, there's a couple of ways, categorically speaking, that, that we do that on an individualized basis. One is just through my posts. And, you know, right away, I, I don't know, like inside your head, what you're thinking right now. You're like, this guy's coming on here and saying some pretty wild stuff. I tend to be very, very on the surface. I really, yeah. I don't edit. And I understand that I don't. I, I don't. I'm not like missing a screw or I don't understand what I'm saying because I do. But it's just my style. And I do the same with cancer, man. I really, really write about and talk about what it was like, what it felt like, the effects that it had, the fears that came with it, the deficiencies that I think it's left in my life for the past 40 plus years. So I think one is that, you help people with your personal story because they can relate to you on some level. It's part of their experience. And then they realize you're doing okay now. That in and of itself, I think is a big help. I also do podcasts called We Win when I bring other survivors on and we share the stories. And we focus hard on, on, on the really deep, dark parts of it because, you know, if you're going through it right now and you're stage four, I talked to this beautiful young lady, new mother, who is going through the worst of the worst. And when she first uh, saw me, her mother reached out to me and I offered to speak with her and she didn't want to do it. And she said, well, you know, I just looked really briefly and I saw that, you know, you look like you're in decent shape. You got a nice house. You got this. You got that. I mean, I can't relate to that. My life's horrible. So what we do, we go deep about how awful it was. We don't hide that. And it's never about, you know, poor me. Look what happened to me. Feel bad for me. It's to let people know that what they're going through right now is shared by others who are doing good now. So part of it's my posts, part is the podcast. And dude, I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one also. Well, as someone who is deeply involved with cancer, but canine cancer, because we do so many things here at Dog Podcast Network and in my other businesses related to dog cancer, I know how important it is to be able to talk to others who are going through it and human cancer even more so. So I think you're doing pretty amazing work there. I want to give you something to read that, that you wrote, Rick. Okay, here we go. Okay. So I wrote, my best friends are career criminals and spiritualists and quick on the trigger, hard drinking street brawlers and business leaders and environmentalists slash conservationists, illiterates, prolific authors, they all have one thing in common. They're good people. Good, good people. You have collected a large group of friends from various, you know, career criminals and spiritualists. What draws you to them or what draws them to you? Well, I think I can come up with an answer to that. First thing I want to say, you know, I'm looking at what I wrote there. People could hear that. I go, wow, this guy just thinks he's so cool, doesn't he? And I get how it can come off that way. But again, I, I, fun for me to be out there. What can I say? You know, I have I have a podcast, I think, you know, called Talking Tough. And on Talking Tough, the tagline is the world's toughest men and women at their most vulnerable. And, you know, I've had on the head of the Hell's Angels and the uh, an Auschwitz concentration camp survivor and a child soldier from the Sudan, lost, lost boys of the Sudan, they were called. And these people have all like, you know, descended to the depths of hell and ascended out the other side. And. I, I feel like we have a shared experience going from bad to good. And I feel like when people live that, there's just a lot more dimension to offer in a relationship, whether it's a, you know, a real deep friendship or just a, you know, a casual connection. And I just find, 
I guess the best way for me to say it is I find people that have lived life on the edge just to be, well, for certainly more interesting, but typically also just deeper people because they've been there. If they come out to their side, they usually have a pretty good head uh, on their shoulders and a, a good perspective about what it is to live a life and be good doing it. And do you find that that interest in, we'll call it the underdog, it seems like you have an interest in the underdog. Did that in any way inform your opinions and thoughts about dogs and specifically pit bulls? Oh God, for sure, man. I mean, <laughs> 100%. I was uh, in Los Angeles, I don't know, 10, 11 years ago, walking down the street with five friends. We were pitching a reality show called Tolerance House. And it was what happens when you take five extremely enormous, gigantic, tough, scary looking black dudes who have really been through this, came out to their side, end up pretty fully evolved. And you stick them into a house with a bunch of 18-year-old, hardcore, white Aryan oh, youth. Oh. <laughs> so that was the... Um, you were trying to pitch this show. Yes. So we went to pitch BET. And we we almost... There's a lot of almost, you know, almost be nothing in Hollywood or anywhere else for that matter. But we're walking outside and people are just like crossing the street left and right to avoid us. And I turn to these guys and these guys are awesome. And if these guys... Okay, I'll get yeah, I'll get back to this point in a minute. I'm like, you guys remind me of my dogs, and they're like, dude, thanks, Rick. Man, what does what does that mean? I said, well, you know, I have two pit bulls, and they're they're pretty pretty intimidating looking. I go, but they're the sweetest things you'd ever meet. If they had, if it came down, they could take care of business, but they're going to be the last ones looking for that situation, mm-hmm. and. I look at people like that and I look at dogs like that, man, that, you know, they have a a certain exterior or a certain veneer and then a reputation or a perception attached to them largely because of how they look and how they present. And, you know, animals like that, people like that very rarely get a chance to be, to be seen or heard or looked at as an underdog. Cause man, if you look at my friends, you know, and if you do a Google search for me, you'll get a lot of photo matches and, more often than not, it's with a lot of crazy looking, scary looking characters. These are like WWE and, and mixed martial arts and that type of scary looking. All of that. But also, you know, I mentioned career criminals. I mean, yeah. I've, I've had great experiences with the Yakuza in Japan and with the uh, respective mafias in Holland and Brazil and, uh, and in India. Over here in Hawaii, I don't know if you know, there is an underworld. It's based out of Oahu. I'm friends with all of those guys. And these are not the ones you would usually look at and ever characterize as an underdog mm-hmm. because of how they look and what their reputation is. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I found that they're actually usually more beaten up than, let's say, a five foot, four inch, 135 pound skinny guy who hasn't really had much of an experience in life. So, yeah. And, and I, I see pit bulls, man, as being the absolute canine analogy to my friends without question. So what drew you to pit bulls? What was the first pit bull that ever was a part of your life personally? Well, what happened was uh, I had a girlfriend, Anne. This is, I'm not great with exact years. I want to say 13 years ago. And I moved her and her adorable little daughter out from Connecticut. We got a nice house together. And Anne and I somehow decided we want to get two pit bulls. I still really don't remember what the catalyst for that was, though. So I was working. So it was her job to go out and find the dogs. She found a a guy. We went to his house. It was like a quasi-rescue hoarding situation. It was pretty strange. Well, I knew nothing about it at all then, James. So what we ended up with, you know, to me, a pit bull, like to most people, a pit bull is like this big, thick dog. We ended up with two Staffordshire Bull Terriers who, fully grown, were you know, 35 pounds. And I'm like, well, what happened to our pit bulls? I had no clue, man. But what happened was, is typical with my life. I go up to the top of the roller coaster and somehow manage to either endure or create a plummet down the other side. And a year later, found myself without the house, without the girl, um, the whole nine yards, living in a temporary space for a moment while I was trying to get stable again for me and my two dogs, because I decided I was going to keep my dogs, Marley and Ramon. 
So I boarded them for the weekend in Wildemar, California. I went back to LA to try to get things sorted. Got a call from the boarding facility that my dogs had escaped. So I went driving out there like a demon in the middle of the night. Because at that point, I was unnaturally attached to the notion that all I have left on this planet are my dogs. So I went racing out there. Uh, couldn't find them. Yelled their names all night in these dirt roads area of Wildemar and Lake Elsinore, which is in California. And the next morning, I went into the local animal shelter called Animal Friends of the Valley. I'll never forget this place to let them know my dogs were missing and to, you know, put the word out, whatever it is you do when you lose a dog, which I now could teach a seminar on, by the way, back then it was all new to me. While I was there, animal control brought my boy Marley in. He had been run over and crushed on the road. And I identified him when they pulled his mangled body out of a trash bag. Hmm. And to say I lost it would be putting it mildly. I had the animal control officer show me where she picked Marley up was on a dirt road in Wildemar, and I parked my car there. And I refer to my car now in my book as the Mercedes Motel. And I slept and lived in my car for the next two months. And all I did day and night obsessively was look for my missing dog, Ramon. And I eventually, after another horrific incident, <laughs> ended up indoors for a while in a very strange situation, starting to get my life back together. Um, but maintain the um, the Find Ramon campaign. It became a pretty big campaign. I got a call one day from a guy named Mikey Dinko. He's a reality show producer. He said, hey, we've seen your signs everywhere. We've seen your Facebook page. We know you're making an unbelievable effort to find your dog. Um, I produce a show called Pitbulls and Parolees. And we were wondering, and Tia is wondering, I had no idea who Tia was, if maybe you would come on to an episode and we dedicated an entire episode to Finding Ramon. And I'm like, hell yeah. I mean, I'd love to help, right? Right. Get a little publicity for Finding Ramon, yeah. Yeah. So they were hoping we would find him during the course of the episode to have a great payoff. Mm -hmm. That's not what happened. So reality TV being what it is, Tia asked me if I would fake an adoption at the end of the episode. And I was so grateful for her help. I did it, of course, and then handed the dog right back to her. During this, Tia turned me on to what rescue was all about. I understood what she was doing, and I was attracted to it. So while I was living in the Valley getting stuff back together. I contacted a guy named Kyle Schwalb, who has a small rescue in the Valley called Smash Face Rescue. And Kyle is kind of a big, scary guy himself who's been arrested like 15 times for physically beating up people who have beat up dogs. Hmm. Um, so I love him. You're giving me this look, but I love it. I love no, it. I love it. I was like, he, he's he been arrested for beating up people who beat up dogs. Now that I yes. think we can all, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> this isn't like a bad guy. This is a good guy. He's a... He's a Robin Hood of... Smash-based uh, rescue. Yeah. So in any case, I met Kyle. He went into the hard, hardest shelters in downtown LA and took out the Mastiffs and the Connie Corsos and the monster pits that nobody could handle. And that really immersed me in rescue for the first time ever. And I fell in love with it. And I fell in love with these ridiculously giant, scary, vicious and I'm saying vicious with my quotation marks. Maybe I can say it facetiously or sarcastically, vicious. Um, and I, I fell in love with these various bully breeds. And then, uh, you know, after six months missing, I'd kind of had my act back together, getting ready to go back to work. I had got a job at an agency in Los Angeles representing big guys. And I had, you know, every day been getting phone calls from the 951 area code. That's Wildemar area where Ramon was missing. So I had so much stuff out. I'm constantly getting phone calls. Oh, we saw your dog. And if it sounded credible to me, I would drive all the way from the valley to Wildemar, an hour and a half, mm. you know, shout his name, tell him horse, find out it wasn't him and come back all dejected. So it's a Saturday morning, two days before I start my job. My phone rings at seven in the morning, woke me up. It's a 951 area. I'm like, oh God, not this again. Next on The Long Leash, Rick Bassman prepares for another drive to Wildemar. But what will he find at the end? And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. The green, grassy, beef liver spike smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy. 
especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. Everpuff, traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. It helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I wouldn't have it any other way. I want my Everpuff. It just makes me feel good. I am so grateful to be your dog and for the Everpup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup, every day. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Rick Bassman, six months after your beloved pit bull Ramon went missing, you got a call early one morning. What did you hear at the other end when you answered it? Rick, it's it's Kylie. Kylie was a manager at Animal Friends of the Valley, the shelter I just saw Marley's body at. I'd stayed in touch with her. It became a pain in the ass for her, actually, asking if she had information. So she said, Rick, it's Kylie. We got him. So six months after he went missing, they found Ramon wandering around the road, and uh, I got him back. And uh, ever since then, man, I've just been crazy attached to my my bullies. Any idea where Ramon was for those six months? Nope. Nope. He wasn't too beat up, a little scratched up, a little skinny, but not not horrific in, by any stretch. I had so many, as I mentioned, so many calls that if you heard the same thing enough times, like anything, you start to believe it. And I had gotten a lot of reports that he was running with a pack of pit bulls. So maybe he was just out on an adventure, man. I don't know. <laughs> but I was glad to hear he was with a lot of other dogs because it was coyote country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, with a bunch, you're not going to get set on by a pack of coyotes. And uh, I was also afraid of him getting hit by a car like Marley was. So as bad as this will sound, I figured, well, if he's with a big group, it lessens his chances of getting hit. I remember thinking that, man. So that was that whole odyssey started about 13 years ago. Yes. In the process of discovering this amazing breed and how misrepresented they are, you have uh, worked with a number of shelters specifically focusing on rehoming these pit bulls. For me, I got somewhat stabilized at one point and I had Ramon back and he became my appendage man. You know, when I when I made the deal with CESD, that's the agency I went to work for. And it's like venerable old agency in Hollywood, very respected. It was an ordeal getting the contract worked out. And I had kind of tried the owner's patience at that point. It wasn't bad. We got along great, but it was a lot in the deal. And I remember calling him at home on Sunday, the day before I was going to start and go, I got another condition for the deal now. And he's like, what? I go, my dog just came back after six months missing. There is no way I'm leaving him. I need to bring my pit bull to work with me to these beautiful, plush Beverly Hills offices. So Ramon and I were um, at each other's side after that every single day, including stays in the hospital and the whole nine yards until uh, he passed just last year. But uh, even though I had him back, I, I, I was attracted to the breed now. I wanted to do more. So I started looking around, you know, to see what was in the area. I did some volunteer work for Best Friends, which is you know, really well known out in Utah, but they have a place in the San Fernando Valley as well. And then me being me, I decided to bail out of my job and go change my life again. And I went up to Big Bear, got a little mountain cabin in Big Bear. And I'm sitting there with Ramon one day. And I said to Ramon, and no, don't think I'm crazy. I, I know I don't actually have conversations with my dogs, but you, you know what I'm talking about. I think everyone, everyone who's listening to this knows we all do a little bit. Yeah, yeah, they know. So I said, Ramon, we should get you a brother or a sister. Mm-hmm. So I did a Google search 
I think it was Google. Maybe it was Yahoo back then. I don't know. For Staffordshire Bull Terrier through uh, Pet Finder for the region. And I came up with a couple of matches. And two of the matches were at the Linda Blair World Heart Foundation, which was about an hour and a half, two hours away from where we were living in Big Bear. And uh, Linda, as you may know, was the uh, the little possessed girl from the movie The Exorcist. And all these years later, she's dedicated her life to pit bull rescue. She has an amazing place called Linda Blair World Heart Foundation in Acton, California. So I contacted uh, the phone number on the website, and I talked to a nice lady there. I cannot remember her name now. And about an hour later, Linda called me back. And she goes, I heard your story, and I just wanted to say hi. She goes, I would love for you to come meet my dogs. So there were two dogs. I was all set to go meet. And I go there. And I meet Linda and I have Ramon with me because we want to test out the socialization and all that. She goes, okay, well, let's go meet the first dog. And I said, great. And we go to this pen where there's this black and white pit bull. And it was not the two dogs I looked at, this particular dog. And I said, well, what's this? She goes, I just wanted you to meet this one first. And that's the only one I had to meet. Her name was Minnie Mouse. I've told Linda many times over the years, she never is allowed to name a dog again. Linda Blair is the queen of bad dog naming. But but the queen of everything else good when it comes to dogs, that's for sure. And I say that with all sincerity and affection. So I took Minnie home, promptly changed her name to Gogo. And uh, and that was it for me, man. It was me and Ramon and Gogo side by side by side for the next 10 years. And during that period of time, I got very involved with Linda and her rescue. I branched from there, got involved with a rescue in Missouri that's um, run by an amazing lady named Sean Abel. It's called Dogs Nation. And then befriended uh, Virginia Ross Weaver and her husband, Kabika, who uh, own and run Maui Pitbull Rescue. And I just made a point of getting to know the people. I don't know why I did this, James. It's just something that I felt like I needed to do and wanted to do. And I got to get very involved in, um, you know, breed specific legislation and what creates it and what to do to combat it. I got very, very knowledgeable, more so than most, but not as much as others about, um, you know, all this, the true statistics that are associated with pit bulls and certainly all the false ones and how to dispute those. And I became an advocate for the breed and grew a larger and larger platform and just been all over the the world of pit bull rescue ever since. So when people see you walking or back when you were in California and see you out there with pit bulls and then they cross the street Mm -hmm. and they get the wrong impression, what are some of the things that could be said to those to help people understand that pit bulls really are these gentle creatures. Sure. So I brought my kids to uh, the local dog park yesterday. There's a dog park here in Makawal. I don't know if you're aware or not. Mm-hmm. It's pretty nice, actually. And we're in there. And there's one other person there with her two dogs. And six dogs are playing. And I see a lady come up to uh, the fence. And she's got a big standard poodle. And I see her look inside and then she walks away. And I ran up to her. I go, hi. I go, excuse me. I go, I saw you look. And I'm guessing, and I won't be offended, but I'm guessing you saw the pit bulls. I said, oh, my God, this is not the place for my dog. And she goes, exactly. She goes, my dog's been attacked twice at the dog park lately, not by pit bulls. But, you know, I'm really afraid of pit bulls to begin with. I said, okay. So you don't know me, but if I told you that if you brought your dog in here, you and your dog will both be 100% safe, and maybe we could make your dog feel better about coming to the dog park, would you be willing to give that a shot? She goes, yeah, I would. And you know, half an hour later, after she had downloaded to me everything she thought she knew about pit bulls previously, she's like, oh my God. She goes, I'm a new convert. I love pit bulls. That's my next dog. So wow. how do how do we get from point A to point B? A conversion in Maui yesterday at the dog park. That's awesome. This is just yesterday, yeah. But it's not an uncommon thing when you have a mm-hmm. pit bull, as fellow pit bull owners out there know, because we all know that pit bulls love to attack and kill babies. We know that their jaws lock and that you need to kill them to unlock their jaw. These are some of the myths. So first of all, to anybody out there who's a pit bull's jaw locks, yeah. I, I got to say this, man. This goes right in line with dogs are better than people. If you think a pit bull's jaw locks, you probably also think the earth is flat because you're just stupid. Sorry. It is a physiological impossibility 
for any creature on this planet to lock their jaw. The mechanism inside their jaw does not exist. Okay, now, this is not opinion. This is fact. But I had to start with that, James, just to illustrate. You know, a lot of their stuff is quite a bit more subtle than that and maybe steeped a little more in shades of gray. But that's always a good place to start. The jaws don't lock. And by the way, the American Kennel Society, uh, or the AKC, recognized last year 179 different dog breeds in uh, North America or America. And, you know, there are PSI tests, you know, pound per square inch bite pressure done with every breed. There is. Now, pit bulls are strong. When they bite, which far less frequently, by the way, statistically, than your Maltese, your Chihuahua, your Pomeranian, your Catan, and your Bajon Frache. Hey, you're talking bad about my Maltese, but it's true. And, sorry. <laughs> and your Chihuahuas. Pit bulls bite far less than all those dogs statistically. But when they do, they're going to do more damage. They're a bigger, stronger dog. There's no doubt about it. But it's not even the strongest dog out there. The Rottweiler has a stronger bite than a pit bull. I mean, I just... I just I say that not to vilify Rottweilers because I love Rottweilers, but to illustrate the fact that this people's not even the strongest biter out there in the dog chain, let alone having a locking jaw. You know, the um, something else I want to dispel. Pitbull is not a breed. Pitbull is a type of dog. And we call them pitbull type dogs. And your friend who wrote the book would probably tell you this as well. There are arguably maybe 12 different types of pitbulls. It depends you know, do you consider a Boston Terrier a pit bull type? Do you consider a bull terrier a pit bull type? It depends, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say arguably there's 12 different types. So when you hear these reports about these types of dogs that do things, bull mastiffs, cane corsos, whatever it might be, invariably they're labeled as a pit bull. Now, we have a thing in the rescue world for pit bulls we call the eight to one rule. And the eight to one rule is this. If a pit bull type dog bites somebody and does damage and it's reported by the media it's going to be reported eight out of ten times as a pit bull mm. now if any other type of dog bites and does damage you know golden retrievers which have a much greater bite rate than pit bulls believe it or not people are going to be flipping out when they hear this i know that especially if they own a golden facts are and the american kennel club will tell you this the aspca will tell you this golden retrievers bite more often than pit bull type dogs but if a golden bites somebody or a lab, and labs very rarely bite, that's the lowest dog on the bite list almost every year, and they do damage, their breed is only going to be called out in the media report one out of 10 times. Hmm. So right there, that tells you a lot of the story. You have 12 different breeds of dogs, all being called pit bull, first of all, hmm. whether it looks remotely like a pit bull type dog, it's reported as a pit bull being reported eight out of 10 times in the media, any other breed one out of 10 times. That shows you the problem right there. It's just the media loves to, to blow it up, just like they did the Rottweilers in the 1990s and Doberman Pinschers in the 1980s and German Shepherds in the 1970s. Because it makes good headlines and it already underscores something that, that people are afraid of. I suppose so, yeah. It's hard to figure out why the media does whatever it does, especially these days. Exactly. exactly. I don't care. I'm apolitical. I hate discussing that stuff, but it is what it is, right? So in terms of the education to the woman that, that you met in the dog park who changed her view, what was the relationship like when your dogs met this standard poodle? The lady told me that her dog had been attacked twice recently. And it was a very sweet dog, but she's worried the dog has now become defensive, which could turn into aggression. Mm -hmm. So there were actually two incidents there where her dog did begin to attack two of my dogs. And we were able to separate them very quickly. My dogs did not respond. And she says, wow, I can't believe this. This is like I'm seeing everything about these dogs that are against what I've always believed. And at the end of our time there, as I mentioned, she said her next dog's a pit bull, but she also thanked me profusely for A, allowing her dog to socialize with mine, and B, about my dogs not reacting to her dog when her dog started something. Now, you know, that's my dogs. I didn't create that. They did it because they're good, they're good babies. But um, you know, a lot of it I think is how I treat them and how I raise them, of course. But 
they're inherently they're good babies. And I have a photo that I want to show you. And we were at the W Hotel in Hollywood. My dog stayed at many fine hotels in addition to being homeless, by the way. So they got the good life mixed with the bad. And uh, my friend Sierra came by and she and her boyfriend had recently had a, a new baby, a little baby boy. And he's a three month old infant. And Sierra knows my dogs. And she goes, hey, babe, you know, I know your dogs won't bite him, but will they jump on him? I'm like, no, they're really sensitive. And she's like, okay. So she put the baby down on the bed. Now, a lot of mothers out there are going to be freaking out right now, right? I mean, I know it's okay because I know my dogs. And now people are saying, oh, but we don't always know our dogs. Anything can happen anytime. I'll tell you this. Whoever thinks that in my mind is absolutely every bit as likely to wantonly attack somebody as my pit bulls are. I truly believe that. I really do. Um, hey, guys, we're trying to conduct an interview here. We have Wilson and Snoopy uh, wrestling in the background. So she put the baby down on the bed. And my dogs, being as they are, two of them being Staffordshire Bull Terriers, which by nature, and they were originally known as the nanny dog when they came out of uh, London a couple centuries ago, they're instinctively very protective of small children. It's in their breeding. So you saw the photo. Mm -hmm. They are surrounding and protecting this kid in a triangle type configuration. And again, that tells their story. It's yeah. just, it's what they're about. I don't have one that I would be concerned with for one moment would bite a person, let alone a small helpless child. It's just, it's not happening. And people out there could think that sounds ignorant. They could think it sounds stupid and you're entitled to your opinion people, but I know my babies and I know the breeds and the chances are far, far less likely any of these pups are going to bite a child much less likely again than your, uh, what I call the white terrors. The white terrors are the, the French poodles and the Maltesers and the Bajon Fouchés and all that fun stuff. Sorry, James. Yes, I'm terrified of my Kanga meeting your dogs because I think uh, Kanga is going to attack them, which she would do. So a tough guy, tough dogs, but such a tender, sweet heart. What's next for you? Um, my 60th birthday in two months, if I last that long which is debatable. I heard you're having a birthday. Okay. So tell me you're a little anxious about no, it. No, it just sounds like. funny, dude. Cause I thought so many times that my best friend ever in this world died the week before last. Hmm. He was 58 years old and he wasn't sick. It just came out of nowhere, was watching a game and didn't wake up. And you know, it's just, it's one friend after another, after another, after another. And every time me and my friends talk about a friend who passed. I hear the same thing over and over. How the hell are you still alive? And I'm like, yeah, right. Um, you know, I had a I had a second three-year illness from 2013 to 16, which were I went for a back surgery at Cedar Sinai Hospital with an esteemed surgeon, and the surgery got botched, and I got hugely infected at Cedar Sinai. At Cedar Sinai, it happens. Wow. You know, best surgeons in the world, Best hospital, happens. Yeah. So. I got hugely infected and the infection was aggressive. So it started to eat my spine. And I ended up with four major back surgeries in a very short period of time. They're going and cleaning infection out and they couldn't arrest it. So they put me on a thing called vancomycin. It's an antibiotic that uh, Wikipedia ominously describes as the drug of last resort. And ultimately it did kill the infection. I was given a two month survival prognosis this time by uh, an infectious diseases specialist named Richard Sokoloff at Cedars. And they put me on this antibiotic and it destroyed my kidneys. I ended up with double kidney failure and on dialysis. Hmm. And that put strain on everything else. And I had two strokes. Now, this is all 2013 to 16. Uh, it's been like one thing after another. But here's a funny thing. So I'm 59 and 10 12 now, I guess you would say. And I feel good. You know, I'm in reasonably decent shape. Certainly better than most guys my age, most guys 10 years or 20 years younger even. Now, I know that sounds arrogant, but oh, well, that much I think I earned at least. I love where I live. I love my dogs. I love my job. I even like my car. <laughs> you know, It's like life is good, man. Um, my podcast is so much fun. It's called Talking Tough. We're, we're building a big audience for that. I'm doing it with three co-hosts. We call it uh, tongue-in-cheek, the tough guy's version of The View. Because we tell, on one half, we tell tough guy stories. The other half, we get all touchy-feely, and it's fun. 
and it's real. And I don't really have a grand life plan anymore other than it's going to sound so boring. Continue to build on stability. Isn't that crazy? Because I've been unstable for my entire adult life. And I feel like I'm finally settled with some stability. I love my boring Friday and Saturday nights. I mean, if there's a great woman in the future, so be it. It's not a necessity. But then again, if there is, it just, you know, goes with the life. I still, you know, probably some little bit of travel and some adventuring in the future. That's, you know, part of the fiber of my being. I don't know, man. I wish I had a sexier answer, but I just don't. It's a beautiful life that you have built. And it sounds like it is very well-deserved and you're doing a lot of good in this world. Rick Bassman, thank you so much for being with us today. Aloha. Thank you, James. Rick Bassman is a passionate pit bull rescuer who also provides hope and support to people battling cancer. He's also an American entrepreneur, a talent agent, an author, and a podcaster. As you've heard today, he has one heck of an inspiring story. For more on Rick, we will have links in today's show notes so you can reach out to him. I want to thank you for listening today. Please follow The Long Leash in your favorite podcast app. And don't forget, we have a number of shows here, a dog podcast network that you might be interested in. You can find our award-winning podcast, Dog Cancer Answers, as well as our flagship show, and that is called Dog Edition. All of the links are on our website at dogpodcastnetwork.com. Here at DPN, we would love to know what you think about our shows. And you can let us know by going to our website and clicking on the little blue microphone icon, which is located on the bottom of every episode page. You can leave us a voicemail. And who knows, one of those may influence what we do here at DPN. And perhaps it'll be used on a future show. You can also find us on all of the social media channels that use us back Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and of course, Facebook. Oh, and one final request. Please, if you enjoyed today's program, please, please tell a friend about The Long Leash and Dog Podcast Network so that we can continue to grow our audience of dog lovers around the world and bring you more stories. Well, that is it for today's episode. I'm James Jacobson. Thank you so much for hitting that play button. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, we wish you and your dog a very warm aloha.